Okay, so I'm going to talk to you uh, about uh, constitutional reform and um, talk about different models of constitutional reform. This is, as you know, it's a work in progress. I, um, I've given it twice and um, had some interesting feedback. Um, I, it's due somewhere in a couple of months, so I'm looking for even more feedback. Um, so I, I really do welcome your comments and criticisms. Um, Okay, so um, populism and particularly authoritarian populism has in the past often been thought or characterized as being in opposition to constitutionalism, that um, as a practical matter, many populists try to you know, um, you know, work around the constitution or oppose the constitution, or even at a philosophical level, there's this idea that authoritarianism and constitutionalism are in principle in opposition. But what we've seen lately are a number of people have noticed that there are a number of regimes which can be described as populist authoritarian and the regimes that I'm very specifically talking about and actually I'm really only talking about these regimes in this paper is uh, Hungary, Poland, Turkey and Venezuela. In these four cases what you see very clearly is that there is a pursuit of an authoritarian populist agenda using constitutional reform as the means. So in all four of those uh, cases, they are interested in um, engaging in constitutional reform and also, I will argue, engaging in constitutional reform within some structure of what we might call liberal democratic constitutionalism. So this has come to be called, and I didn't make up this term, um, um, populist constitutionalism. So people like Jan Verlin Mueller use this term and Andrew Arado use this term and a number of people, particularly um, Europeans talking about constitutional reform uh, use this term populist constitutionalism. So um, I'm interested um, in looking at this phenomenon and I'm, I'm concerned, I see two dangers and it's these two dangers that I want to try to um, articulate an answer to. So um, the first danger is that both the empirical both the institutional innovations and the institutional things that are being done by populist constitutionalists, I'm going to turn this on, so I don't um, as well as their uh, rhetoric, justificatory rhetoric, um, separates liberalism from democracy. And so, uh, and what they do is they kind of, you know, they want the mantle of democracy for legitim legitimacy purposes, but they want to try to extricate it from uh, liberalism. And and I think it's not just that I don't want to. I don't want liberalism and democracy to be taken apart. What I really want to claim is that um, they cannot claim the mantle of democracy. That is, um, uh, I, I, I think that they are using a very problematic view of democracy. Um, and so I'm interested in arguments to show not just that they are illiberal in what they are doing, but that, that this is undemocratic in what they're doing. And I think that this whole separate, trying to separate liberalism and democracy is actually a very problematic um, um, uh, uh, both at a conceptual and a practical matter, um, a problematic uh, strategy. So that's the, the first danger I see in um, these movements of populist um, constitutionalism. And the second, and in some ways I'm more interested in this, this, but but I'll probably talk maybe less about it, is that um, these regimes all use democratic institutional means to pursue uh, their agendas. So they use referendums, they use electoral majorities, they use things like constituent assemblies, right? So these are all democratic institutions. Um, and one of the things that I worry about is that they kind of give a bad name. <laughs> so I am very interested in citizens participating in constitutional reform. I think constitutional reform should be uh, a democratic <coughs> process. 
Um, I think there are ways of using referendums uh, in constitutional reform. There are ways of including citizens, in, including uh, in using majoritarian, um, uh, particularly like referendums. Um, so it's important to me that I show the difference between, between how the populists, I think, misuse referendums, uh, for example, and the way they can be used in, in what I would call an authentically democratic um, constitutional reform. So those are my two kind of arguments that I want to flesh out uh, in the paper. Um, I do this, uh, first of all, I like to talk, I start with a section on, you know, what is populist constitutionalism? I lay it out a little uh, briefly. And then I have this section, which I really will go over very briefly, because I haven't really, like, figured it out yet, but it's, a, it, it talks about the liberal constitutionalist response to it and this debate in the United States between liberal constitutionalism and what's sometimes called uh, popular or democratic constitutionalism and how uh, this... This debate really actually is not helpful in thinking about answers to populist constitutionalism, and part of why it's not helpful is that it reproduces this dichotomy between rights and democracy um, that I think is at the heart of the problem of, of populist constitutionalism in the first place. And so um, I end then with this defense of the idea of deliberative constitutionalism, also a term that's been united make up, that lots of people, there's a couple of books out there that have just come out about this term, deliberative constitutionalism. Um, and I put forward that as an alternative. Um, and at the end, what I will do is I will do concrete cases of uh, citizen participation in constitutional reform and contrast them. So my cases are Ireland and Scotland and the use of referendums uh, citizen, um, uh, citizen assemblies um, and citizen participation in the constitutional reform in Ireland and Scotland and compare it to these uh, cases of Turkey uh, and Hungary. So that's the quick um, overview. Um, okay, so what is um, populist constitutionalism? Uh, the first thing I think I really have to talk about is the term populism, you know, it's everywhere now, it's everywhere, and uh, there are a lot of people saying, you know, it's overused and, and that might be true. So I really want to start with a disclaimer. Um, I am not offering a definition of populism. Um, I am talking about a, ver a, a very, very particular um, kind of syndrome that certain uh, regimes use. That is, it is a strategy of constant, or put another way, it is a strategy to consolidate power in these populist authoritarian regimes. <coughs> Um, and um, so really the comparison is with other ways of doing constitutional refor reform. And um, I'm quite ex explicit that this is a path I consider this a pathology. Um, and it has to do with <coughs> the misuse of certain types of uh, democratic justifications and democratic institutions. Um, and I, as I say, I don't really want, I'm not claiming, for example, that these regimes are populist. I'm claiming that this, they might be, right? But my argument is really is that the strategies they, they use, I call it populist constitutionalism. And um, what, maybe I shouldn't, you know, maybe I should call it authoritarian constitutionalism or something like that. Um, the reason why I use the term populist is that at the heart of these claims, right, is a claim about speaking on behalf of the people. And it is an explicit claim about democracy and about uh, as a justification and speaking on behalf of the people. So just the term authoritarian doesn't really capture it. And furthermore, it's not just a kind of superficial rhetorical claim uh, to use democracy. I mean, you know, Bernard Crick begin, begins 
he has that book, I think it's the short introduction to democracy. He starts, he says, look, you know, all these horrible regimes in history have, you know, tried to claim to be democratic, right? So, you know, the, whatever, the Democratic Republic of, 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 of Korea. I mean, you know, everybody. So it's not new that people try to, but there's a real difference when somebody like Orban claims um, to be using democracy to justify, um, because they, they are claiming to be working within a liberal democratic, all these regimes, even Venezuela, right, uh, still has a constitutional court. So there is a claim to be working still within the framework of liberal democratic constitutionalism, and in all those four cases, they're claiming that they're just correcting it a little bit. That, in the, that this balance between liberal democracy has just gone a little too far over towards liberalism, and they're bringing it back towards democracy. Um, so um, there really is this claim. It's not just you know like using the word democracy. There is a, a more substantive claim, and so and I want to try to unpack that claim. So it is important that um, I refer to this this term as um, populist constitutionalism. That's not, you know, as I say, I don't really want to get into the problem of defining, you know, so there can be, and, and the other thing is, this strategy that I'm discussing, it's really a strategy of parties in power. It might be the case that opposition parties, they might have some rhetoric that would appear to actually imply that they would do this in power, but it is a strategy undertaken to consolidate power by certain parties. So it's a very, I'm trying to get to be a very narrow, view of um, a certain type of constitutional reform within generally liberal democracies, I and mean, we can argue maybe, maybe Venezuela has like, gone too far now. But, um, and so the term populist for me is important because of the centrality of um, the claim of, of speaking on behalf um, of the people as characters. Um, so um, what is the claim? Uh, so here, actually, I very generally uh, borrow um, from Jan Werner Mueller, who I think actually, um, he does put forward a general definition of populism, and, and um, one might find this problematic um, because he really focuses on the anti-pluralism um, and not, say, on the anti-elitism um, of populism. Um, but for my purposes, um, <coughs> It actually is very good, his definition of um, the problematic view of the people, um, because in all four of these cases, or, or, or if we find similar cases, um, this is at the heart of the claim. So the three, the three claims are that the populist regimes, the parties, right, they use this as justification. First, it's a claim to speak for an authoritative people. So there is a claim of popular sovereignty. It's not just moral. You're not just getting up there and saying, you know, um, you're actually claiming in representing the people to, to the, this gives you the authority to do things, pass laws and so on and so forth, right? So that's the first claim. The second claim is to speak the truth on behalf of a unified authoritative people. So here you see a common across all four of these, but maybe you know different um, um, extent, is that there's opposition, dissent, and criticism really has no place. That opposition, dissent, and criticism, particularly in the public sphere, is understood as putting roadblocks up uh, um, um, to obstruct the will of the people. Um, so it's anti-pluralist. Um, and three, it's the claim to speak exclusively on behalf, exclusively on behalf of the unified authority of people. So it's not just um, 
the, the general opposition to pluralism, it's the vilification of alternative perspectives um, that you see. And, and in this last, what you see is the, you know, the rhetoric, the kind of um, the um, Schmidtian rhetoric of friend-enemy um, in the public sphere. And, uh, and you see this in all um, uh, four of the cases. Um, so I take this view of the, the people um, and I look at um, really three dimensions of uh, populist constitutionalism. The first is the rhetoric. And I have lots of examples. Um, let's see if I, I'll, um, this is a quote from uh, Erdogan in 2017. He says, the republic belongs to the people. Sorry, the republic belongs uh, to the public, the people. Those people, when he talks about those people, he means the opposition. He goes, those people don't have respect for the people or popular sovereignty. Remember the slogan, one people, one flag, one homeland, one state. Um, I mean, you, you know, it's, it's pretty clear. And um, in all four of these cases, there are great examples of the rhetoric um, in which they appeal to the people. Uh, and it's always a unified people. And um, opposition and dissent is described as being opposed to the people. Um, the second component um, of these four, the second is that um, they all, it's, it's interesting, you know, um, Jan Bernard Mueller claims that the, um, claims that in, in, in claiming to represent the people, the claim is really a moral claim, right? Um, uh, on behalf of these parties. Um, and it's a moral claim because they have constructed a, a fictitious people, right? Um, that they are representing. However, uh, in addition to this moral claim and this fictitious unified, um, they almost always back it up with an empirical claim having to do with majorities, right? And so in all these cases, they have said, look, we won a majority of this election. We, were, we won this referendum. We, so they always have empirical claims uh, backed up uh, using the appealing to the participation of citizens in some form of aggregative or electoral or majoritarian um, institution. Um, and what's really interesting is that these two first components, that is the rhetoric, the justification is about the people, it's about democracy, it's about participation. The institutional um, means of uh, electoral majorities and referendums is also all about citizens speaking and citizens acting and citizens participating. But the goal is always um, the uh, consolidation of executive central power and the perpetuation of the party in power. Um, so the goal is not itself the expansion of participation. Now, in some places, so for example in Turkey, right, the part of the, ref the, the, the referendum was about bringing about a stronger, actually bringing about a presidential uh, system. Now, you might want to argue, well, you know, there can be a claim that a presidential system is directly elected by citizens, therefore it is enhancing participation. Um, but it's not enhancing participation in any kind of significant or uh, really meaningful way. Um, and, it's, and it's pretty clear that the interest uh, in, in all four of these places, but um, in the enhancing of the, it's not really in citizen participation, it's in um, structuring the um, institutions such as to consolidate the central power of the executive. And in all these cases, top of the list of institutional reform is the limitation of the court. 
And of course, I want to argue that this is an it's not just anti-liberal, this is an anti-democratic move. The limitation um, of the court vis-a-vis vis-a-vis um, vis vis the way the courts can maintain and protect the public sphere, vis-a-vis -vis the way the courts can oversee and um, have oversight over um, executive power. So there's this interesting kind of contradiction between the rhetoric and institutional means of democracy, but actually the institutional goals of reform, which is all the consolidation of executive power and the perpetuation um, of, of parties in power. This is like most clear in Venezuela, where um, you know you might argue it's kind of gone so far that it's no longer um, a liberal democracy. But as I say, they 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 have a they still have a constitutional court, and like you know why not just get rid of the constitutional court? Instead, they have it can't really do much, and it's kind of packed with you know the party people. But they still want to have the kind of trappings of uh, liberal democracy. Okay, so. Um, What's wrong with populist constitutionalism? So a kind of standard um, and, and intuitive way to approach this is to say, um, well, you know, I mean, why do you have courts? You have courts so you don't let majorities you know, do what they want to do. You have courts to limit majorities and to protect individual rights and so on. So, um, and, and so there's a kind of standard liberal argument that says uh, it's really bad to, to limit the courts, and it's even worse to actually make constitutions subject to majoritarian, you know, I mean, that sort of defeats the purpose of constitutionalism. If you can just have a referendum, 51% of the population gets to change your constitution. Um, but the problem with that argument is that it kind of concedes the point. It says, look, you know, you have liberal limits to democracy. And democracy by itself, just majorities, is really pretty dangerous. And that's actually why you have, you know, constitutions. But that's exactly what all four of these regimes, but particularly because he's the most explicit, um, Orban is saying. Orban is saying, look, liberalism limits the will of the people. Absolutely. And, you know, it's limited so much that, it's, that, that we have not actually been able to create a Hungarian state, which is really, you know, expresses the interests of the people. So that's, that, that is the problem. You're right. <laughs> so we want less of that kind of limitation. So this liberal argument just sets up a kind of the competition that they want, right? Because it, it is premised on this idea that rights and democracy are in conflict with each other, and they're just going over to that side. So, so Orban can say, absolutely, he can say, look, because he, he said, he says, look, you have liberal democracy. We want Christian democracy. You know, that's what we want. And, um, and, and, and th these are just two different things. And, and you can't, you know, we, we know what liberal democracy is, but that's not what we want. Um, and so this seems to me, this, this argument is just not very helpful at really, because in the end, it's just going to say, well, you got your way, and we got our way, and it's not really going to challenge um, these these uh, constitutional reforms. I think in a in a substantive way, and in fact, the whole debate in in um, American constitutionalism, because of course there are groups in the, in the United States, there are legal scholars who challenge the uh, you know rights courts based um, sort of stress in some traditions. So so you know some people call it popular constitutionalism, some people call it democratic constitutionalism, it's also what's sometimes referred to as political constitutionalism, that would be people like Waldron, maybe Tushnet. Um, and all three of these groups argue that, um, you know, argue that 
yeah, we went too far over to the courts, right? That we don't have enough democratic input, but they also understand democracy in pretty much majoritarian terms. And um, they also kind of say, well, we just we have to kind of tilt it back over. Maybe not, of course, over the way Orban wants it, but um, so this whole debate, I think, um, certainly in American, maybe not so much in, in Canadian constitutionalism, but in American constitutional um, scholarship, recreates the dichotomy between rights and democracy, which I think plays into the hands of um, uh, the, of the kinds of arguments that are being put forward by populist constitutionalism. So I want to suggest um, a different route, um, and that is um, deliberative constitutionalism. So deliberative constitutionalism, also it's a thing. <laughs> I didn't make up the term. Um, there, is now, there are now two books out um, that are collections of essays on uh, deliberative constitutionalism. Um, and um, this is, of course, a view of constitutionalism that is informed by theories of deliberative democracy. Theories of deliberative democracy, there's a lot of them, and they're, they're really, they have, of course, family resemblances, but there are a lot of different ones, and so there are also a lot of different ways of understanding um, deliberative constitutionalism. Um, the core idea um, is that you understand liberal democracy or li liberal or um, constitutional constitutional politics in um, deliberative terms. Um, I'm going to put forward and defend a view of deliberative constitutionalism that is heavily, surprise, surprise, heavily informed by Jürgen Habermas's work. <laughs> <laughs> um, and um, in it, I'm going to say that there are four components. I'm going to defend it as having four components. Like the first two components are like totally Habermasian, and the second two components are, the third component is more like Simon Chambers reading Habermas, and then the fourth component um, uh, is what I consider some of the most cutting edge uh, work done in uh, deliberative democracy, having to do with um, things like referendums and uh, practicals. So the first is the um, co-originality um, thesis, in which, as we'll see, Habermas argues that um, you can't really separate democracy and liberalism. The second argument is just really very important, and it's subjectless popular sovereignty. I mean, sometimes people call this post-sovereignty, but it's the idea that um, there's no one identifiable people ever, ever. Um, and um, and Habermas has a procedural view uh, of that, so that not and, and why this is really super duper important is because this shows that one majority can never represent the people. One election, one referendum, even though you, you might. Uh, can never actually <coughs> articulate uh, the views um, of the people um, or, or carry the mantle of, of popular sovereignty and justification. The third argument is that in disaggregating and proceduralizing the notion of popular sovereignty and the people, the public sphere replaces the vote as the central institution of democratic legitimacy. You still have to have votes, of course, and votes are very important, but you think of votes as kind of punctuating a procedural system over time that no one vote carries any kind of really, um, carries any um, really heavy duty legitimation. But also, more importantly, it is the public context within which votes take place that is the most important thing. So having elections where you have no free speech is the simplest way, but it's, you know, of, of illustrating 
why you need a public sphere, but in this view, um, it becomes more kind of elaborate and um, complicated. And then finally, um, when you take these three together, the practical um, implication is that it really shows a picture, a potential of uh, deliberative or, or democratic participation in constitutional reform whereby these, the institutions and the practice or the participation is in some way safeguarded from majority capture. So um, at the end of this presentation, I'm going to talk about how you can think about referendums that are not, I know it's going to sound counterintuitive, but a referendum that is not a majoritarian instrument. It is instead a catalyst for a national conversation and so on and so forth. Um, so those are the four um, parts. Uh, Co-originality, co some of this, I mean, a lot of it might be you know, pretty familiar um, by now. Um, so Habermas's thesis of co-originality is both a theoretical um, thesis and also a kind of historical descriptive thesis um, over time. So um, it's a justification for modern constitutions, which says, look, um, you know, we've been sort of caught in this fruit, fruitless, I guess, you know, what comes first, rights or democracy, rights or democracy. Um, they actually, they justify each other in, in this circular way. So if we want to try to, you know, if we don't want to rely on a natural right or a natural law um, argument, we have to really see rights as, uh, rights that are instituted as really justified through becoming the outcome of uh, democratic procedures uh, over time. And democratic procedures themselves um, only actually have the power to justify and legitimate um, rights if they're actually undertaken under the conditions of rights, right? So it is this co-originality, which, which he, he means it historically, that is rights and democracy kind of developed together. But also he means it uh, theoretically that the only thing that can justify rights are the, is the proper organ are, are discourses and um, democratic actions. But those can justify them only if they're structured in a certain way. The, the circularity is, me, is mediated by um, a theory of discourse. And the theory of discourse says, look, when we think about justification, not justification or anything in particular, but just the idea of justification, um, think about the structure of what counts as a justification. Um, What's happened in the modern world is that we don't really have any collectively agreed upon buck-stopping arguments and justification. We can't go to God, we can't go to natural rights, we can't go to nature, we can't go to um, uh, even consensus, right? So instead, we kind of have to fall back on the procedures of justification itself. Like, what counts as justification? Well, if you had a conversation where everybody was equal and everybody finally agreed. That, so more and more, we rely on trying to reproduce the conditions of justification, which gives us warrant, not certainty, but warrant, that the outcomes are justified. So he says, we have to actually think about the relationship between democracy and rights kind of like that. Um, that if we think about rights as actually creating the political structures for having open discourses which can test and argue and create a procedure of justification over time, then this will actually um, 
create conditions for justification. So the democratic will, it's not, it's not just willing, right? It's not just because I say I, I, I agree that justifies the outcomes. It's that I agree under certain types of conditions. So those conditions can make you, can kind of hook into the, this discourse theory of the conditions of justification. So that the outcomes are legitimate to the extent that you can see in, your, in, the, in, in our rights, in our constitutions, in our social structures, that you can see the conditions of equal discourse existing there for, for the outcomes. Um, and so, 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 so what you see in the end is that it's not just that you have liberalism and democracy that are mutually um, kind of reinforcing. It's that they're actually, they're, it's impossible to separate them. Um, and that the conditions of discourse, or even the conditions of voting, are uh, an essential part of what democracy is. Um, and so this, um, I, I could spend longer on, on this, and we, I'm sure you're probably going to want to re return to it. I actually do find this argument um, quite persuasive. Um, I do think that it um, offers a, a view of the relationship between rights and democracy um, that <coughs> Really does show why arguments that the arguments say that look democracy is just majority rule, and you know lots of people say that, including you know not not just um, populists, but um, you know Kasmuda in his book on populism said yeah democracy is just majority rule. Um, that shows that that can't really be what democracy is, and that democracy the the, the primary principle of democracy is the equal status or the equal and autonomous status of each and every citizen. That you cannot have democracy without that first. And majority rule or voting is a one institutional articulation of that, but that's not the fundamental principle. The fundamental principle first is the equal status of every citizen. Um, and I think that, um, and in the equal status of every citizen, that collapses liberal, liberal principles and democratic principles together at the starting um, <coughs> principle. Um, and what this, um, so constitutional moments and constitutional reform, both foundings, but also reforms like, you know, and amendments, right? Um, these are, these are part of a, a, a overtime process of bootstrapping. So, um, no one, you, you can't say one vote or one referendum or one amendment has captured that moment of uh, popular sovereignty because um, no one moment can capture this ongoing process of reinforcing itself. It is a process that has to be evaluated over time. So the claim to say, aha, we got 51% of this, we, or we, we, we like had a, we have a huge majority, electoral majority, uh, and you know, a huge majority in, in parliament, and this proves that we have the people behind us. Those kinds of arguments are completely undermined by this, uh, this view. Um, and so what this does is it changes the uh, relationship between popular sovereignty and majority rule. Um, and it, and it argues that even though popular sovereignty, that is the people, um, are, are somehow the, you know, the, the, the carriers of legitimacy, um, in evaluating whether or not your system actually um, is a system that 
that adequately articulates or allows citizens to, to articulate their, their views has to be evaluated over time procedurally, right? So you have to look at things like, well, you, of course you have to look at socioeconomic issues, but you also have to look at structural issues like the openness of the public sphere, the access to the public sphere, the circulation of information, the circulation of reasons, um, the relationship, uh, the, the, the pathologies that, are, um, um, that you find in political communication. These are the kinds of questions that you look at. Um, and what this leads to is a view of popular sovereignty and the people which is um, disaggregated. So Habermas uses the term, you know, subjectless um, um, and, and a sometimes anonymous um, view of the people where no one point uh, articulates the people and that you evaluate um, peoplehood uh, through pr procedural um, evaluation. Um, This is a quote from Habermas. It says, popular sovereignty is no longer embodied in a visible, identifiable gathering of autonomous citizens. It pulls back into the, as it were, subjectless forms of communication circulating through forums and legislative bodies. Um, Habermas also calls this idea of popular sovereignty autonomous and lacking, quote, um, overly concrete notions of a people as an entity and a communicatively fluid sovereignty. So one of the things that people love to um, cite in this debate about populism is Claude Lafour's idea that um, the people is an empty place, right? And one of the mistakes or one of the dangers or problems of populism is that um, they want to fill that up. They want to fill it up with a picture of the people and use that concrete view of the people um, to put forward certain types of, um, and justify certain types um, of agendas. So Habermas does kind of embrace this idea of the empty space, but it's not completely empty because then he makes a very sophisticated argument about the procedural, the procedural rules and regulations and processes um, by which we can actually evaluate the health uh, and even the existence of um, uh, the exercise of popular sovereignty. And at the end of the paper, very shortly, um, I'm going to give a concrete example. Um, right. Okay, so what this does is it um, places the public sphere, um, broadly understood, um, in a important role. That is, the public sphere, in a sense, replaces or displaces um, votes. As I say, you, we have votes, we have elections, we have referendums, we, we need votes, we need votes for all sorts of uh, reasons. You know, um, um, but what now becomes important are the conditions under which votes are taken and the kind of the circulation of reasons. And, and not only the circulation of reasons, even more important, the possibilities of dissent, opposition, and criticism within the public sphere, right? Because if you are evaluating now your democracy on its procedural grounds, right? And if, you're, and if those procedural grounds are being evaluated generally from a point of view of the conditions of justification, then what you want to be able to have, have warrant that the outcomes are solid, are dependable, are you want to have as many voices as possible, you want to be able to answer as many criticisms as possible, you want to hear all the objections as much as possible. Um, so you have to have an open, critical public sphere, which might 
you know, sound chaotic, and it is often chaotic, um, but that is the condition of popular sovereignty. And that is exactly the condition that populists undermine, criticize, and try to avoid. That is, they see an open public sphere as an enemy to the articulation of the people's will and as setting up uh, roadblocks and um, opposition to the people's will. And it's in their, their undermining, and it's not just, you know, because of course we, we don't have perfect public spheres, right? Our, our public sphere in Canada, the United States, is full of pathologies and we can, you know, criticize it in all sorts of ways. Um, but there's something more significant in the way the populist constitutionalists, because it's not just that they don't promote it, uh, it's not just that you know they allow for regulations that um, create like radically um, unequal accessibility to the public sphere. They actively undermine it. They, for example, um, that there is a lot of press suppression, opposition uh, going on in these public spheres. Uh, some, you know, Venezuela is the worst, but actually um, Turkey and Hungary are pretty bad and getting worse. Um, they, you know. Fake news, the what I call fake fake news, because it's the accusation of fake news. So it's the fake fake news um, is um, in a favorite accusation on the part of um, these leaders when it comes to um, opposition voices or minority voices or dissenting voices. So their concerted focus on undermining the conditions of the public sphere, I want to argue is what is the telltale sign that these, um, their claim, that they forfeit the claim to be um, acting actually in the name of democracy. Um, yeah, so these are, they are, they are um, yeah, dissent is the populist, the, the obstacles maliciously, always maliciously placed um, in the path of the rule of the people. Um, so, um, so what you know? So I've been talking in kind of pretty general terms about um, what are we doing? okay, uh, pretty general terms um, about this idea of a um, of a procedural evaluation of the public sphere. Um, what would that look like uh, in concrete terms? And so now, at the end of the paper, I just want to briefly bring up uh, two cases and do some pretty down and dirty comparisons. If there are any comparative politics people in the room, they're going to be horrified by this, but uh, I, I do hope to elaborate these cases uh, in more detail. So the first case is the case um, of Scotland. So Scotland has decided to um, take up the issue of Scottish independence, and um, what they did was they were thinking through procedures. They knew that they were eventually going to have a referendum, but they really basically decided to start a conversation like, you know, five years before they were going to have the referendum. And the government um, put in a lot of money, not in ad campaigns, but rather a lot of money to try to bring in civil society organizations to try to get the conversation going. So right away, this there is a clear distinction when, for example, in Turkey, in uh, the 2017 referendum, it's very clear that the referendum is, they're interested in the referendum for a mandate, for an agenda set by the elites. It's a very short period of time, uh, the, the uh, referendum campaign. The question is set, there is no, you know, um, and the question is set from above, and it is structured in such a way, uh, a yes or no to give a mandate, right, to uh, a party that wants to have, that has an agenda. 
versus the way in which in Scotland this uh, referendum was set up. Uh, it's first of all um, uh, designed to uh, be a catalyst for a conversation. So right away they, they understood that that would require not just the government you know, saying, what, what do I hear, what do I hear, but actually getting the buy-in from civil society organizations, from churches to you know, bridge groups to all sorts of, and that takes time and it takes a lot of uh, grassroots working. And um, by all accounts, there really was um, a national conversation. The actual campaign, the official date of the, when they, they set the referendum, they had 18 months um, uh, uh, to have the campaign. Um, and again, there was um, a lot of um, discussion and a lot of debate and a, and a lot of buy-in. Everybody, you know, was um, was aware of it. And they also used this not just to focus on independence or dependence or independence, but to use this opportunity to talk about well, what do we, how do we see um, Scotland in the future politically? Um, uh, what kind of inst democratic institutions do we want? Where do we see our, uh, for example, uh, immigration and identity? So they used this as an opportunity to have a national conversation about the future um, of Scotland. And in the end, of course, there was a referendum. It didn't pass. There was a majority minority vote, right? But it's clear that the vote was simply um, the kind of endpoint or the catalyst to have the conversation. And the structure of the referendum was not focused on um, majoritarian instruments. It was focused on using the referendum. So the referendum, in a, in a sense, it, the voting part got downgraded. Uh, and what got upgraded what, what, um, was the conversation. Um, the vote was just you know, a kind of catalyst for the conversation. And if you compare that to Turkey, where the use of referendums, as I say, is top down, it's, an, it's um, it's, it's the agenda is set, the question is set, set by elites, and it is entirely structured to give um, a, a, a mandate for um, a certain type of, um, uh, um, of elite action. Um, the second case that I take up is the case of Ireland. So one of the ways um, that um, referendums can be structured is to have um, citizen assemblies or mini-publics um, prior as agenda setting. Um, and in Ireland in 2013, they set up a uh, constitutional convention. Um, and constitutional convention was actually, it was made up of 65% uh, of citizens and the rest was made up of um, parliamentarianism, parliamentarians. And the parliamentarians were from all the parties that were um, in the, um, the, the legislature, as well as three from Northern Ireland. You really didn't have to be there, right? But they, you know, it's, um, and it was, they started with a, a narrow agenda, but one of the first things that they did was they opened up the agenda. And um, so that it was an agenda setting uh, institution, um, which then um, said, well, you know, we really need to talk about this, and we need to take a decision on that, on gay marriage. Uh, at, at this, the, the first sitting, they did not talk about um, abortion, <coughs> they talked about um, different um, structures of representation and so on and so forth. And then this citizen assembly then put their, the, the agenda that they had set um, into the public sphere in which then after that they structured referendum, but the referendum, but one of the things they did is they disaggregated it, right? So there would be one referendum on gay marriage, another referendum on representatives and so on. And again, the entire structure, the entire institutional structure was really designed to try to get um, uh, maximum amount of buy-in and maximum amount of 
national conversation about the future um, of these institutions in Ireland. If you compare that, the Constitutional Convention to the Constituent Assembly in Venezuela, which there have been a number, but there's a this latest one in 2017. So on the surface, the Constituent Assembly looks like it is a democratic institution. Um, but the problem is, is that only people from one party, the ruling party, were allowed to run um, for this. And so the, the, um, and the agenda for the, what, the, what they you know, decided in the Constitutional Assembly was already set by the party. And so what happens is that this Constitutional Assembly, it gives the impression of actually representing a kind of common consensus voice because the, the outcomes, like what they decide in this Constitutional Assembly has been, you know, like the votes are like 95%. Um, there's, there's very little dissent. But what they did was that they excluded um, any kind of opposition at the design phase. So um, it was it was it was designed in, in order to further the agenda of um, the populist party, and not designed um, like the one in Ireland to actually elicit a um, conversation. So in both these comparisons, in the comparison of of uh, Turkey and Scotland and the comparison of Ireland and Venezuela, you can see the way the exact same institution in a sense, first one referendum, the second one constituent assembly, um, democratic institutions can be implemented and designed in different ways. One actually I think to promote democracy as I understand it and uh, the other to um, undermine democracy by uh, undermining pluralism, dissent and the public sphere. Okay. And that is that's the end. Thanks very much.